Well, I do want to just extend a huge thank you to uh, Dan for inviting me up. It's a great pleasure to come up here now to Coast Bible Church. I've got it down. See? And uh, I, we are um, just rest assured of our prayers for you. And uh, we, uh, I have a great affinity and, and love for um, Rob, and I know that um, many of you do too. And I was sad to see him. Uh, leave, but uh, excited about what God is going to do here, and um, getting to know Dan just a little bit, and seeing his heart for the, the ministry, for the Word, and for you, um, is encouraging, and so uh, please uh, get behind him, and get behind the work that's going on here, and uh, pray uh, for God to do a great work on the Central Coast. Um, I just do to make just a quick plug. Um, I didn't ask to do this because it's easier to get forgiveness than it is to get permission. Um, I just want to throw it out there. Um, uh, for anybody who is uh, aged 18 to 30, okay, now 31, 32, you can sneak in as well. Uh, in September at Emmanuel Baptist Church, uh, we're hosting uh, what's called the Recalibrate Young Adults Conference. It's something that I've run um, for the last 10 years or so, and uh, we are expecting well over 200 young adults from across Australia um, to come and uh, come together for a Friday night, all-day Saturday conference. Uh, we're blessed to have uh, Martin Isles from, used to be Australian Christian Lobby. Um, he's flying directly over to uh, preach at uh, the conference, as well as a number of other of workshop speakers, and uh, a good mate of mine from New Zealand as well will be one of the keynote speakers. Um, it is for that age group, that 18 to 30 um, age group, but uh, that's our, our prayer is, is that this will be a conference which really ignites uh, a fire in the hearts and lives of the next generation of Christians, and uh, for those who will one day rise up into leadership in our churches and in our nation. Um, we have people already registered from Queensland, from Victoria, from rural New South Wales, from all around Sydney. Uh, it's a great opportunity as well for those of you who are in that age group to connect with other young adults um, that maybe you haven't met before, um, and to know that you're not alone uh, in the Christian faith, and uh, so we're praying for a great turnout. So if you are in that age group, come see me. Uh, we'd love to have you. It's just, uh, you know, we're an hour down the road. You can either uh, go down Friday and then come back and come back Saturday or spend the night, whatever you want to do. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll, we're going to feed you. We're going to give you great spiritual food. There's going to be some, you know, opportunities for you to connect um, with other young adults. There's uh, the gym will be open for extended period of time to so play basketball, soccer, it'll be table tennis, all sorts of stuff. So it'll be fun. Um, <laughs> everyone's like, "Oh, I'm too old. I can't go." Uh, yeah, yeah. Someone did try to register the other day who was 42, and I'm like, uh, "You're you're a bit over that age group." So I had to had to cancel it. But no. Um, so anyway, just thought I'd throw that out there. Hope that's okay, Dan. I apologize. I didn't ask you if I could do that beforehand. <laughs> All right, let's um, turn in our Bibles. Thank you so much for the reading of God's Word, Romans chapter 5 and verses 6 to 11. Would you uh, pray with me as we get into God's Word this morning? Our gracious Father, we come before you and we thank you so much for um, the gathering of your people this morning. And we know that there are churches who are gathered all across this land. Uh, who are right now sitting under the faithful preaching of your word. And we know that right now you are working sovereignly in the hearts of so many people across this world, drawing them to yourself. We pray that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would, would blow this direction this morning. We pray, Father, that you would 
take your word and uh, illuminate it to our hearts and our souls. And I pray that you would just help me to explain clearly and accurately uh, what it has been written. And so, Lord, we acknowledge that all good things come from you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our text this morning, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, I've entitled a sermon this morning called, The Love of God on Full Display. Think about the greatest act of love that you have experienced in your life, or just simply the greatest act of love that just comes to mind. Maybe it hasn't even been your personal experience, but what would be the greatest act of love? Maybe it's something you've even witnessed in somebody else. I, th I think we would all agree that whatever comes to our mind, whatever action or event or whatever it is, that that would have to involve some degree of sacrifice. Because, I mean, after all, isn't it? The, the very idea of love and the concept of love is seen in the act and known in the act of giving. That's essentially what love is and what love does. Love does not receive necessarily, but love gives. It's by definition, it is sacrificial. But the greatest act of love are those that involve sacrifice and benefit little or nothing to the one who gives. And let's be honest, a lot of our acts of love often are done with some even tiny strings attached, that, that we expect a degree of gratitude, we expect a degree of thanks, we expect a degree of reciprocation for that love. I mean, even in a, in a marriage, which, you know, is you're, you're there with the person that you love the most, you, you extend love, but you do also expect in some ways to receive love. And if we don't receive that love, it becomes very difficult to keep extending that love because it seems like it's entirely one-sided in one way and directed only towards one person, and we don't get much out of it. But the greatest act of love that we have ever experienced or that we would ever experience are those that involve great sacrifice and benefit little or even nothing to the one who gives. I, um, I grew up loving and, and watching and playing uh, basketball for most of my life, and uh, I still keep in tabs with the NBA and and uh, still enjoy uh, watching a game whenever I can. Um, but one of my favorite shows to watch is a show called Inside the NBA, and it's kind of an analysis show, um, and it's on once a week, and uh, it's an award-winning show. It's won multiple awards on, on uh, the Emmys and, and different things, and there's a, the main host of the show is a man by the name of Ernie Johnson, and uh, he also is a, an Emmy award-winning uh, presenter, and uh, Ernie professes to be a Christian. Um, I've heard him share publicly his Christian faith on, on, uh, on documentaries and so forth, and, and I really have no reason to doubt the genuineness of his faith. Um, but one of the things that struck out to me about Ernie and his life is not so much his excellence in presenting this award show, uh, but something that has a far greater significance, and that is back in the early 90s, in 1991, uh, he and his wife had had a number of children, and they decided, they felt like God wanted them to 
explore the option of adoption. And so they begin to pray about it and look at different options as to who or what child they could adopt. They saw a, a, uh, a program which detailed orphanages in Romania. And if you know anything about history in that time, early 90s, Romania was still under communist rule. And these orphanages were just big rooms full of cots. And babies were just placed in these cots and uh, hardly ever picked up, hardly ever cuddled, hardly ever taken care of, but they would be fed and changed, and, and, and that's about it. And, and their hearts really were burdened to go to Romania and adopt what they were expecting to be a little baby girl. So uh, Ernie's wife, Cheryl, flew over to Romania to go to this orphanage, and she was. this is already obviously a big decision for them, and they'd you know, decided that they wanted to show a little baby girl and give her an opportunity that she wouldn't have otherwise uh, to life and a, and, a, and a life of happiness and joy and bring her into their family. And Cheryl walked into this main room, and the first child that she saw, a little cot next to her, was a three-year-old boy by the name of Michael. Michael had never been outside apart from the day that he was found abandoned in a park as an infant. And he was brought into that orphanage, and he was placed in a cot, and he was basically left there and just fed and let, never picked up, never cuddled, never hugged, never kissed, and he was now three years old. And the lady who was showing Cheryl around said to her, don't worry about him, he's no good. She took him around, she took her around and showed her a number of the other babies, and, and Cheryl, again, thinking that she was coming to adopt a baby girl, couldn't get young Michael off of her mind. She went back to her hotel room, and she rang Ernie, and she said, I, I just cannot leave without him. Her heart was filled with compassion for that little boy, and so rather than adopt the little baby girl, she called her husband, Ernie, and he said, all right, bring him home. So she took this little three-year-old boy who couldn't talk, couldn't walk, uh, couldn't feed himself, uh, had significant developmental delays, and, and it came out later he was diagnosed with a form of muscular dystrophy and basically was, was said that he was, he was basically a death sentence. He may not make it even past his teenage years. But the Johnsons brought him in, they adopted him, they covered all of his medical expenses, they made him part of their family, they showered him with love along with all of the other children, and in 2019, Michael, at the age of 33, finally passed away. But the Johnsons testified that as much as they had changed his life, he had radically changed theirs. Now let me ask you. Is this not a demonstration of love? Absolutely. To, to go and pick the one who is considered no good, worthless, and to bring him into your home and give him that which you have and shower him with that type of love is a, is a massive demonstration of love. And again, not doing it because there was a, some sort of financial or even emotional benefit to them, yet they benefited in many ways through it. 
But as amazing and as touching and as the Johnson's sacrificial love for Michael was, I want to preach to you this morning about a love that even far exceeds that. On a scale that is immeasurable. A love that goes beyond anything that we could ever even imagine or see in the human world. A love that is immeasurable, that is inexplicable, and that is sacrificial sacrificial and demonstrable. We are talking about the love of God that he has for sinners. And this is what is on full display. This is what is being mentioned here in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, is that we are going to see that this love of God that is now on full display is, is undeserved love. It is demonstrated love, and it is a love to be delighted in. And my prayer for us this morning is we are confronted with the love of God as we see it both in contrast to us as the unlovable people that we are, but also in connection to the overall redemptive plan of God that we would just be humbled, that we would be grateful, perhaps even repentant, as we see His love that shines brightest in all human history. First of all, look with me in verse 6 as we consider God's love undeserved. Verse 6, he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For no one will scarcely die for a righteous person, although perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, you think about the example of the Johnsons adopting a child that was deemed no good by all those who worked there at that orphanage. Love, if we think about it, is greatly seen and great is seen in contrast. Or perhaps put it better this way, the the more undeserved a person is to receive love, the more glorious the person must be who demonstrates love to that person. Think about it right now. Who would you die for? Don't answer that question. Your spouse? Some of you are like, eh, maybe. <laughs> Probably your kids. Maybe not all of them. I mean, there are very few people that we would even take a bullet for or that we would trade places with on a deathbed or that we would give up our own life for. And this is what Paul is saying, for scarcely or hardly or maybe almost never would someone die for a righteous person. And yet we see that God's love is demonstrated greatest when he dies and he sends his son to die for those who do not deserve it whatsoever, who have no uh, reason, if you would, no justifiable reason in our mind that, that you would die for, that you would trade places with them for. 
And yet still, this great act of love that we would say, you know, if I were to die for someone or give my life for someone, even that still is as great an act of love pales in comparison to the love that God has shown to us who are undeserved. God's love is undeserved for a number of reasons. You'll, you'll notice here, he says in verse 6, he says, for while we were still weak, at the right time or at the due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who did Christ die for? He died for those who, first of all, the Bible describes, or Paul here describes us as spiritually weak. Spiritually weak. Now, that, that word describes all mankind. Okay, that is the, the spiritual condition that we, we find ourselves in. And what, what is he referring to? Well, if you go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, uh, this is Paul's conclusion of the doctrine of justification by faith which he's been arguing for in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, up to the end of Romans chapter 4, and he finishes it with this statement, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Why do we need to be justified by faith? Because our works are worthless. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Even the best human, human that's ever lived falls short of the glory of God. So therefore, we can only be justified by faith. But since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope in the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Look at all the beautiful benefits that, God, that Paul is declaring about being a Christian. There is hope there is purpose and joy even in suffering. There is access to God through faith. There is reconciliation with God through faith. And, and not only that, we have the love of God poured into our hearts. And I thought about that statement there in the end of verse 5. What is it that motivate, would motivate someone like a Cheryl Johnson to adopt that no good little boy, bring her home and make her part of a family? It's because the love of God has been poured into her heart. And because it's been poured into her heart, it now flows out of her heart. And because that love flows out of her heart, she is able to show love and extend that genuine sacrificial love to those who do not deserve it. Think of this idea of weakness here and think of the picture of your mind of young little Michael who is completely helpless on his own. Uh, he, he, is, he has no ability on his own to to survive, to, to raise himself, to even, even learn or, or, or anything because he is completely weak. This idea of weakness, this, this concept that we are spiritually weak, it, it describes us as feeble or without strength, sick. The picture here is of that cripple like young Michael. So when you think, well, the Bible says I'm, I'm weak, don't think weak is in just like you know, or sick, like, you know, you've got the, the common cold and you're just feeling a bit off. No, this is like a type of sickness which just renders you completely unable to do anything. Have you ever been that sick? 
Like you can't even hardly get out of bed, you can't lift a finger, you can't hardly feed yourself. That is the way that the Bible describes all of our state outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, unable to do anything for ourselves. Paul takes it even further in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, all men outside of Christ are described as being dead in trespasses and sins, completely without life. And both are the same teaching. What is it describing? What is it teaching? It's teaching that we have no natural ability in and of ourselves to do anything to reconcile ourselves to God, to save ourselves, to bring us into right relationship with God, to justify ourselves. And, and again, this goes, doesn't this go against all the philosophies of the world? This goes against every religion. Because at the end of the day, there are two religions in the world. There is salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ, and then there's just everything else. And that's it. It's either works or it's grace. This goes against all philosophies and all other religions, which in one way or form or another teach just some modified version of self-help or self-righteousness. That you can do it, you can make it, you can be it, you can, you can wish it, you can will it, you can think it, you can believe it, you can do it. And if you just put your mind to it, you can make it. But God's love is not shown to those who just need a little assistance, okay, and, or a little guidance. And sadly, this is the way that, unfortunately, the gospel has even been polluted in a lot of churches, that the, the gospel is just kind of this help that we need, this kind of crutch that we lean on, uh, this kind of, you know, um, uh, thing that we add to our life to make our life better or give us purpose or meaning or whatever it is. No, no, no. That is not what he is saying. But it has been poured out on those who are completely empty of their own strength. We are, outside of Christ, spiritually weak. The love of God has been shown the love of God is given to those kinds of people. If you don't see yourself as spiritually weak, if you don't see yourself as hopeless and helpless before God, you will never experience the great love of our God. Second of all, we see the love of God displayed or to the undeserved. We are undeserved not only because we are spiritually weak, but because we are sinfully worthless. Uh, he says, not only, he says, do we have verse 6, he says, while we were still weak or without strength, he says, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God shows his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only are we spiritually weak, we're unable to save ourselves, we are also sinfully worthless. All men and all women are born and are sinners. He uses two different terms here. He says sinners, he says ungodly. Uh, later on, he talks about us being at enmity or enemies of God, verse 10, while we were enemies of God. So if you just take those three words, that describes all men and all women outside of Christ. We are ungodly, we are sinners, and we are enemies of God. Now, that's, that, that third one's really important because I think if you talk to most people, their concept of sin is like, yeah, yeah, I'm a flawed human being, I'm not perfect, um, you know, I make mistakes, 
Um, and, and everybody will kind of generally admit that. And then when you ask them, well, what have you done? They can't actually name anything because they still think of themselves as, well, I've made mistakes. I just can't name any. Um, or I, you know, I sin or I don't always do what I'm supposed to do or whatever it is. But the third one is really significant. Because this is where we have to understand that, that our sin is not just simply the fact that we are flawed and, and faulty human beings, but our sin is, is actually makes us at enmity and we are enemies of God. Because sin is more than just simply a mistake. It is a defiance of the righteousness and the goodness of God. It is a breaking of His holy law. So we're not just friends of God who make mistakes occasionally like friends do and you know, kind of have to apologize for it. No, no. We were at enmity with God. This is, this, and isn't this the Apostle Paul's testimony? Paul acknowledges himself. I, I was an enemy of God. I hated God. Even though I thought I loved Him, I was persecuting His own people. But God demonstrates His saving love toward us who are, again, this doesn't mean that we are without value, but in comparison to God. Okay, God doesn't need us. Remember, love is greatest shown when there is little to no benefit for, those, for the person who is extending that love. Okay, God does not have a man-sized hole in His heart that we fill, Okay? We don't, we don't, he wasn't lonely before he made us. He wasn't incomplete before he made us. He was the perfect triune God in perfect fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is self-existent, self-reliant. He doesn't need us. And yet he extends his love towards sinners. By scale, we have fallen absolutely short, not just a little short, an eternity short of the glory of God. Men curse God. Men hate God. Men deny God. Men blame God. Men disobey God. They dishonor God. They forsake God. We love sin. We hate righteousness. We pursue ungodliness, not, of course, to our fullest extent, but as much as God in His mercy allows us to, in order to have the love of God poured into our hearts, we must realize this reality in ourselves. You see, love is so much greater and brighter and, sh and, and more beautiful when you can see yourself for who you really are. Then you can see God for who He really is. May I remind you this morning, and I know that there are many who sit and, and they, they have a very high view of themselves. They don't think of themselves this way. They don't think of themselves because they've been told over and over and over again by the culture, you're special, you're amazing, you're worth it, you're worthy, you're beautiful, you know, and, and we've tried to uh, abscond from any language which, which might be shameful or sinful and everything's now put in the basket of psychology and, and, and we don't think about sin as much as, as we do. But I also want to encourage you that, you know, there may be, and I know that there are, many who sit and, and do feel a profound sense of worthlessness. And, and their problem and our, your problem may be that you think that, you know what, God could never love someone like me. God could never save someone like me. May I remind you that it is for you that Christ died. 
It is for you that God demonstrates the love, his greatest love through the death, death of his son. For, for most who don't view themselves this way, they don't quite get that concept. But for those who are overburdened by the profound sense of their guilt and their shame, who are hiding it and covering it with all sorts of addictions and, 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 and uh, false facades and, and all sorts of things they cover their shame with, it is for you who Christ died. It is for the child in the basket who everyone says is no good. That is who Christ came to save. And isn't that his whole ministry? The beggar on the street, the blind man in the street, the woman at the well whom society had cast off, Lazarus instead of the rich man, he came to save sinners. He came to save you. God's love is most clearly and deeply seen when we understand that his love is, is undeserved and unmerited. But, but how does God actually love us? And, and this is what's key. And, and this is what Paul's going to emphasize here. This is verse 8, which I think is the, the key verse in this text. How does God actually demonstrate his love? Is his love just some sort of sentimental affection? Is his love just simply a song that he sings to us? No. No, no, his, his love is demonstrated in the most profound and redemptive way that could ever, ever, ever be accomplished. And we see second point here is God's love is demonstrated. Verses 8 to 10, you see love must not only be declared, it must be demonstrated. We, we know that. It's one thing to say, I love you, all right? It's another thing to actually demonstrate that love. Otherwise, your words just fall to the ground and they are meaningless. They're empty. They're vain. But God's love is not just simply declared. It is demonstrated. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world, but it doesn't stop there. It says that He gave that he did, that he demonstrates, that he does something to show his love for sinners. A husband who declares his wife, sorry, his love for his wife but never demonstrates it is a, is a liar and a hypocrite. But God's love is not a hypocritical love. It is demonstrated to us. First of all, it is demonstrated by his sovereign choice. What do I mean by that? I mean that God's love is his love. It's his love to give to whomever he will. God is not obligated to demonstrate his love. God in his justice, God in his righteousness, and God in his holiness could have snuffed out Adam and Eve as soon as they sinned, and he would have been completely just to do so. God could, and God would be just to deem and condemn all mankind to an eternity in hell. God is not obligated to show love, but he, out of his love and out of his character, because who he, that's who he is, he chooses to show his love, just like the Johnsons were not obligated to show love towards that young Michael. They chose, out of their own love, to adopt and to bring a, a, a boy who was worthless into their home. It wasn't under obligation or compulsion. They were being forced to do that. But God's love is His sovereign love. 
and he will give it to whomever he will give it. He does not give it, and God's, uh, God has given it not to those who deserve it, nor to those who, who he somehow deems worthy of it, but to those whom he will. Paul says, for when we, and that's inclusive of himself, and all those who are reading his letter, and all those who have been reconciled to God through his son, Jesus Christ, did Paul deserve to have the love of God poured into his heart? No. And he knew that. He knew that of himself. Did you? Did I? You know, God repeatedly tells the nation of Israel in the Old Testament why he chose to set his love upon them. Why did God choose the nation of Israel? Why did God choose Abraham? Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Why did he do this? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 to 8, he tells them. He said, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and choose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to his fathers and that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Why did God choose to set his love on Israel? He did because he did. It's his love to give. He's not obligated. And he says to them, I didn't choose you because I saw any, anything in you comparable to the other nations, which would make me choose you. And this is the totally counterintuitive, isn't it? Because when we're choosing people to be on our team, I don't know if you do this, at, they don't do this in school anymore because it I don't know, hurts people's self-esteem or something. But when I was a kid and you'd go out to recess to play sports and you'd have two captains and you'd choose your teams, who do you choose to be on your team? You choose the best players. And then there's me at the end getting picked last. You know, I mean, you always, you pick who's going to make, who's going to make my team better. But, but look at the church of God. I mean, it's, it's made up of all sorts. God, there's no rhyme or reason to it, really. There's wealthy, there's poor. There's intelligent, there's simple. There's, there's all kinds of people. There's no pattern, there's no, there's, no, there's no rhythm to it. There's no like, oh yeah, God only saves this category of people or these kinds of people. No, no, God is his, this is his sovereign choice. God is not a, this is not a sentimental response. Okay, God does not respond sentimentally to someone's adoration, but it is his, his love is his covenantal commitment to redeem and reconcile those who once his enemies to himself. God's saving love given to sinners through the death of Jesus Christ, his son, was not a response to our request. You understand that? The story of redemption from beginning to end is not a story of man pursuing God. It is the story of God saving men. God is always the initiator, and we are always the responder in salvation. God saves us by his, his demonstrates his love by his sovereign choice. He, second of all, demonstrates his love by his son's death. Verse 8, but God shows, this is how God shows his love, for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is the cross where the love of God is on full display. 
It is where the love of God is seen most clearly. More so than all of Jesus' miracles that he did for all the poor and the lame and the blind. More so than him uh, raising even Jairus' uh, uh, daughter from the dead. God's love is on full display when he was there being crucified and the wrath of God for sinners was being poured out upon him. His love is on full display right there on the cross as the Son of God died. In the Old Testament, we see the love of God and this plan was seen almost like through a veil. And I think of it like this, you know, like when a bride walks down the aisle and her face is veiled, you can see part of her beauty. But then as the veil is lifted and there she is in all of her glory and all of her splendor and all of her beauty, you see her as the most beautiful person she, will, she ever has been on that day. And that is what the cross is. It is God revealing the veil, saying, this is my love on display for you to see. If you ever doubt the love of God, look at the cross. But, but how is Christ's death a demonstration of God's love? I mean, he wasn't even the only person ever crucified. He wasn't even the only person crucified that day. There were two other guys on his right and his left. They were being crucified. Why is their death any different than his? Now, you can say people say all these things. Well, he was teaching people how, you know, sacrifice and, and uh, you know, and all these types of things. No, no, no. It, it goes far greater than that. His death, sorry, his, the, his death was a substitutionary death. Jesus' death was no ordinary death. It was no ordinary crucifixion. But Jesus' death was a willing and voluntary substitutionary death for guilty sinners. When it says Christ died for the ungodly, that's substitutionary language. That's, it means that he dies in our place. That means the punishment for the ungodly is death, eternal death, and there on the cross, Christ was absorbing that punishment for you from God. We are being saved from the wrath of God. I hope we understand this. When we are saved, we are not just saved from our sin, we're saved from God himself. It is a satisfactory death. Jesus Christ paid our redemption in full. It satisfied God's righteous demands for sin. All of God's demands for righteousness that he has upon you, which you cannot meet in yourself, Christ paid that and lived that, and it renders us justified, and it justifies God and godly men and women. What is justification? It is the legal declaration by God that the law has been satisfied, that guilty sinners may go free because the price has been fully paid. It was paid by Christ's blood. This is love, that God would send His Son, that the Son would of His own volition lay down His life for you and I. And it also is a reconciliatory death. In other words, it reconciles us to God. Verse 10, he says, uh, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more than now, how, how we that are reconciled shall be saved by His life. God's love through Christ not only removes sin's penalty, but it also re removes God's enmity. His wrath no longer abides on us. We who were once afar off are now brought near by the blood of Christ. 
Can you see how this love goes beyond anything any human experience on earth can even imagine? Again, as great as that act of love in adopting that no good boy, that even still does not compare to the love that God has for sinners. In Christ's atoning work on the cross, you and I now have the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who indwells in us. This is God's sovereign choice that He bestows upon unworthy sinners through the death of His Son. And then thirdly and lastly, God's love is not only undeserved, it is demonstrated, and God's love is a delight. Verse 5, he says, and hope... Going back to verse 5, previous in, in the, before verse 6, he says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In verse 10, he says, much, uh, much more than we are now reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. You know, when you look at verses 6 to 11, and you look at it in the overall flow of the text, they don't actually have to be there. Paul could have easily gone from verse 5 to verse 12 if he just wanted to continue in kind of his legal jargon and logical discourse in the book of Romans of the gospel. But it's like he can't help himself, because when he says that the Holy Spirit has been, the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, you can almost see as he's writing that little twig in his mind like, who are the us? We're the ungodly, we're the unworthy, and this is how much the love of God has been demonstrated towards us. And this is something that brings hope and joy. Paul begins and ends this section with this great rejoicing, and he bookends by these two words, hope and, and rejoicing. God's love is understood, seen, and received by faith in Christ, and what does this produce? It produces an eternal hope and an eternal joy, a hope that sustains you in suffering, a joy that sustains you in suffering, and a joy that is enough to bring you into glory. When we understand the, the love of God, he says, first of all, the reconciled sinner rejoices in God. Isn't this fascinating? This is the God whom we were enemies with, whose wrath abides abode on us. Now that that has been absorbed and, and, and taken by Christ, we now rejoice in that same God. And God is no longer our enemy. God is no longer this tyrant that we once envisioned him to be, we understand him now to be our father and our savior and our, and, and our God whom we love and worship. And it's not that we're, we rejoice so that we worship him out of fear in that sense like the, like the Muslim world does. We, we worship him because we see who he really is and his love amazes us to the point where we have no other ability to do anything than to rejoice in him. This is the natural response what does it mean to rejoice in God? It means to boast or to glory in. When you've traveled down this text and you understand God's love demonstrated to you, what else do we have to boast in? We have no one and nothing to boast in other than God. We cannot boast in ourselves. 
because we see in him the great love on full display. The reconciled sinner rejoices in God himself. Do you rejoice in God? The reconciled sinner rejoices through Jesus Christ, and that's kind of significant, isn't it? We remember back to high school English or prepositional phrases. I had to do a refresher course just in this, but um, you know, he says, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the difference? Is there a difference? Yeah, I think so. In denotes destination, location. Through is the passage or the avenue by which we get there, right? We got into this building through the door, okay? Uh, that's how we get somewhere. So Jesus Christ is the way to God. We rejoice in God through the conduit and through the mediator of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is him who takes the sinner from darkness to light, from death to light, life. It is through him that we receive the reconciliation. And it is through him that we have access into this throne of grace. And through him, we are redeemed and restored. Brothers and sisters, the love of God is immeasurable. It is inexplicable. It is sacrificial. It is unmerited. It is unwarranted. But it is abounding towards sinners. And if you are here this morning and you have not had the love of God poured into your hearts by the Holy Spirit, if you are still an enemy and at enmity with God, if God is distant from you, if you are distant from Him, maybe you haven't seen yourself as that unworthy sinner, helpless and hopeless, that needs to be reconciled to Him. Would you see there on the cross the love of God for you on full display? Would you come to that cross and bow before it and humbly acknowledge that there is nothing you can do to save yourself, but just cry out, have mercy on me, O Lord. With nothing in our hands can we bring, but just simply to his cross should we cling. Romans 5.1 says that we are justified by faith and faith alone. Are you trusting in Christ alone? If not, the love of God does not abide on you or in you, but the wrath of God does. Come to him, receive his grace, be reconciled to God. And if you are, just praise him, glory in the great love that he's demonstrated for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We do thank you for your precious word. And Father, we thank you for the immeasurable, inexplicable love of God. And Father, we thank you that, Lord, you have showed that love toward us. You have demonstrated that love to us in the person of Jesus Christ. My prayer is that everybody here would know that love. We pray these things in his name. Amen. And like I said, right, what a, what a passage. And thanks, brother, for opening.